1: Just around the corner did a lot in california can't wait to drop this don't you yeah they gonna have fun with that smash like song and my songs gonna break through like a running back
0: hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with formula one my name is mark hamilton and not joining me today my friend my neighbor, my colleague, my friend me, my resident op, Mr. Daly, and that's because it is a holiday Monday up here in Canada. At least I believe every province celebrates uh, some iteration of a holiday here in British Columbia. It is BC Day, but we still got a ton of stuff to talk about despite the fact that it's the summer break. There's some interesting news and there's some interesting gossip out there and Thought we might as well sit down and go through this. If I sound a little bit tired, I went very hard this weekend. We were at the beach multiple days. We were at the pool. I ate way too much Syrian food. But I'm in a good state emotionally, just Try to prepare for the fact that it's back to the grind tomorrow. Although, again, a short week, Tuesday to Friday, not too bad. I know Mr. Daly is also cooking up something very cool that I think he's hoping to release on the podcast feed on Wednesday. And then we'll be back on Friday for our typical news show. And then next week, we're probably going to be dropping, finally, finally MotoGP. 101 so from the top as always big shout out to the race weekend the entire team over there if you're interested in subscribing collection 2 is in production as we speak and if you do subscribe and you use skidaria pod as promo code you will save 10 which is pretty cool racing exclusives of course are our major partner when it comes to Furnishing our Fantasy League with our top prize. Big shout out to Teese and the entire crew in the Netherlands at Racing Exclusives. Of course, they are one of the premier resellers of F1 memorabilia. Of course, a lot of it is raced used or it's signed. And all of it comes with a certificate of authenticity, which is pretty darn cool. A reminder as well... Getting closer and closer, September, October, November. We're now about three and a half months away from our November 18th watch party at my house. We will be doing a live screening of the Las Vegas Grand Prix at my house. And I'm sure that for 99.5% of you, that is irrelevant because you don't live in Vancouver, British Columbia. But if you do, or if you're interested in traveling here, as I know a few of you are, uh, we will be hosting a very cool watch party, and all the food and all the drink will be provided. Presuming, assuming you provide a nice $30 contribution in the form of a donation to the Canadian Mental Health Association, an organization that is very near and dear to my heart. As I said in our Twitter feed a couple of days ago, we also need your help. We need your help. We are in the process of putting together the outline for our Power Units 103 episode with Charlotte Saloom, but what we want to do with this episode is make it a mailbag type episode. But rather than you simply sending us a message via DM or WhatsApp, whatever the case might be, We want you to reach out and we'll coordinate for you to send us a voice note because we'd actually like to play the voice note on the show. We feel that would be kind of a cool, cool way to kind of present the questions and give people the opportunity to be on the show and just make it a little bit more inclusive. It's kind of like harkens back to the olden days of ESPN talk radio and things like that. But we're excited about that. And if you have a question, uh, please, please, please reach out because we'd love to get you on the air. Also, I want to call this out, again, it's probably about a week old now, but August 1st represented the 23-year anniversary of Valentino Rossi scoring his maiden Premier Class victory, which was at a very wet Donington Park in the UK. He'd go on to win a further 88 races, which is just phenomenal, but we'll talk a little bit about Valentino Rossi and MotoGP a little bit later in the show now, right off the top, I wanted to I wanted to address some of the rumors that I, I'm seeing circulating and flowing around on on social media and on Reddit on the Discord service and things like that. And typically, unless a story gets picked up by Motorsport or Autosport or one of the bigger publications or uh, therace.com, and there's some actual substantial quotes addressing the issue from the stakeholders involved, typically don't like to dive too deep into it. But some of these stories I thought were kind of interesting and they continue to persist, or some of them are so outlandish. I felt that there was some value in debunking them on, on the show. And I think the first one, and this one really caught fire over the course of the last week, was that without any substantiation, there's the rumor that the 2024 alpha tower rate will be down to, down to the molecular level will be an RB19, and that people are panicking. Like, how can they do this? Why would they do this? And I think the first thing to consider here is that, one— Nobody has said that that's what they're going to do. And furthermore, the, the regulations strictly prohibit that from happening. That if you look at the chassis and you look at the aerodynamic surfaces of a car, they're all considered listed team components, which, quote unquote, are components whose design, manufacture, and intellectual property is owned and or controlled by a single competitor or its agents on an exclusive basis, there is no way for them to sell those components on to what is effectively a competitor, even if they fall under the same corporate umbrella. So the likelihood of AlphaTauri showing up with an RB19 next year is is very very low. These are listed team components, and a lot of this regulatory language uh, arose from the early years of the Red Bull. Toro Rosso Alliance when they were effectively doing exactly that, which was basically borrowing the chassis. And I think even before the the newest set of regulations, there was a lot of really strict language about this because you didn't want to see somebody selling on a car in its entirety because of what that would do to competitive balance. So there are certain components within a car that, yeah, for sure. You know what? You want to buy a gearbox from a competitor. You want to buy the rear suspension from the team who's also supplying you with a power unit. Go for it. But there's certain things like the floor, the aerodynamic surfaces, in the chassis that need to be developed internally, or they can be developed by a contractor, but on an exclusive basis, meaning that those parts are being developed only for you. So I just, I I wanted to kind of play that down a little bit, because while I think the iteration of the Alpha Tauri or whatever it's called that's going to come to the track next year will be closer in nature to the RB20 than the ato 4 is to the RB19. It won't be because they're going to be breaking all of these regulations and incorporating all of these listed to team components. There are a variety of components that you can buy from a competitor and incorporate into your car. And for whatever reason, the ato 4 has some Red Bull components, but it doesn't have the full catalog of parts that it could purchase. And I think that that's going to be a no-brainer, that there's going to be increased synergies between the two teams. And I think AlphaTauri, or again, whatever it's going to be called, is going to be more predominantly based in the UK than it has been historically. And I think they'll borrow whatever they can from the parts catalog out of Milton Keynes, where the Red Bull factory is. But I would not expect there to be an RB19. I also pulled up a really cool article from race.com back from, I think, 2020 and this article was really written in the shadow of the the pink mercedes scandal i don't want to call it a scandal i I still don't think that was as uh as crazy as as maybe some people thought it was but there's a a couple of quotes here that i want to pick up on that kind of speak to speak to the ltc regulation definition and what teams can and can't do when another team has a really good concept or a really good formula right that we're seeing this now where obviously red bull has some distinct advantages for the rest of the field and we're seeing their concepts being borrowed by the other teams, and I, I think that's a natural progression that either you look at what a competitor is doing and you simply borrow that concept, or your engineers has eventually come to that conclusion through simulators and wind tunnel work anyways. But again, this really cool article from the race.com a couple of years ago, they write, well, the LTC definition sets clear boundaries for the design and manufacture of such components. The rules also attempt to eliminate outright copying. The rules accept the principle that it is permissible to be influenced by the design or concept of the competitors' LTC using information that must potentially be available to all competitors, but there are limits to this. The regulations state that such information can only be obtained at events or tests. With reverse engineering also outlawed, reverse engineering is defined or is defined as four processes, which are listed and, and it references a specific article of the regulations. That a the use of photographs or images combined with software that converts them to point clouds, curves, surface or allows CAD geometry to be overlaid onto or extracted from the photograph or image. B, the use of stereo photography. Wow, this is a tough word. Let me try that again. The use of stereo photogrammetry 3D cameras or any 3D stereoscopic techniques, C, any form of contact or non-contact surface scanning, D, any techniques that project points or curves on a surface so as to facilitate the reverse engineering process. And then the article continues, effectively, this means that it's not permitted to use advanced 3D modeling techniques of scanning of physical parts to gain precise measurements to facilitate reverse engineering. There have been such suggestions in the past that, uh, well, oh, sorry, there have been suggestions of such activities in the past with Mercedes team principal Total Wolf suggesting earlier that an unnamed arrival was scanning his cars both inside and outside of the garage. So it, it's it's interesting that the, the, the regulations effectively account for the fact that the, the boring of concepts is going to happen, but they make it pretty difficult by outlawing all the very technical ways in which you could get precise measurements of all of those aerodynamic surfaces. So all of this rambling, which is on been going on for about five minutes now is is just to kind of calm those fears that look you know what the ato5 again whatever it's called will not be an rb19 clone but it will probably borrow more heavily from the rb20 than the ato4 does from the rb19 and again when I say borrow I mean specifically those parts that can be purchased as per the regulations of the of the program of the sport the the other thing that I would be very considerate of here and everyone listening to the show knows that I despise, like fundamentally despise, that Red Bull is allowed to have two teams. On a 10 team grid, it is infuriating it is one of the things that makes me most angry about this sport and to be honest sometimes almost to the point where I want to walk away that look if if a if a team can own a second team on a 10-team grid like that's that's not okay because effectively we have a nine-team championship but I think one of the reasons why teams like Ferrari and, and Mercedes and some of the other bigger outfits haven't protested more loudly about AlphaTauri Toro Rosso in the past is because they've largely been irrelevant to be totally honest, from a championship perspective, they've typically been irrelevant and the bigger teams have been able to take points off of them, which has benefited them in the Constructors' Championship. And I think if you're Mercedes and you're Ferrari, for instance, and you look at Toro Rosso and you say, hey, look, they're going to be a bottom seven, bottom eight, bottom nine team, and they're not going to be taking championship points off of us, and they're not going to be taking Constructors prize money away from us. Do we really care? Because the alternative is they could be sold to a bigger independent outfit that could make them super competitive. And then all of a sudden we have to compete against them. And that kind of leads to my second point here, which is I also think that As much as Red Bull wants them to be financially independent and financially stable, I think if they suddenly became extremely competitive, I think that question of this relationship, this ongoing dynamic between Red Bull and two teams on the grid would probably get blown wide open and I think there'd be an awful lot of questions about whether that is a sustainable thing to do and I think Ferrari and I think Mercedes and some of the other teams would press for changes in the upcoming Concord agreement so it's kind of a unique situation I despise it, but I also don't expect that there's going to be an RB19. One, because the regulations wouldn't allow it. And two, because I think a suddenly hyper-competitive ato 5 would probably compromise Red Bull's ability to hold on to two teams on the Formula 1 grid. A couple of other things that have surfaced a lot this week and I thought were useful to reference. Speaking of AlphaTauri... Um, it's widely reported, um, although there's no specific quotes, that Yuki Tsunoda is going to sign a new contract extension with AlphaTauri. I don't know if that's going to happen before the end of the season. Again, if I'm Helmut Marco, uh, obviously let the season play out, pursue the contract at the end of the year. Um, Zhu Kuan Yew is expected to sign a new contract with Audi Sauber uh, at the end of the season. Also, Charles Leclerc, it's been suggested, has agreed to a new contract, which is possibly worth up to three years uh, as an extension to his existing deal that's being widely denied by Ferrari. At the same time, Carlos Sainz earlier this week was linked to a pre-contract contract pre-contract contract with Audi to make the move at the end of 24 or possibly even at the end of this year. He's now denied that and his campus suggested that they have every intentions to stay with Ferrari. With respect to both of those rumors, Frederick Vasseur has come out and said that, hey, we very much intend to talk to both of our drivers, but we won't be having any contract extensions until the end of the year. And then the only other really interesting kind of newsworthy gossipy rumor mill nugget was that one Pablo Montoya, was on a Spanish sports talk show earlier this week, and he dropped a couple of interesting nuggets that I I, I thought people might be interested in hearing. One is that he is very, very confident that Formula One will be in Madrid in 2025. He he doesn't speak to whether that would be at the expense of the existing Spanish Grand Prix, whether this would be an incremental race or whether it would come at the expense of another race on the calendar, but he's very, very confident it's going to be coming to Madrid in 2025. But he indicated that the reason it's possible is because that F1 Liberty was very close to linking a deal to bring the Formula One calendar to Central America, to Colombia, and that due to some shenanigans in the negotiation process, those negotiations fell apart very close to the end. So again, none of this is official, but I thought it was interesting that Juan Pablo Montoya was on Spanish TV talking about these uh, specific circumstances. Okay, a couple of other things before we get to the news. If you are a fan of collectibles, of course, a couple of years ago, Funko Pop released a Lewis Hamilton and a Valtteri Bottas Funko Pop. I have the Lewis one looking over me right now. But good news, they're going to expand their F1 collection. Max and Checo Funko Pops are coming soon. I think we would expect to see those probably early in the fall. I've got a pretty cool chart here, and typically we do this at the beginning of the show. We compile a bunch of charts just because we think they're interesting and we want to pass that on. But of course, last year there was a lot of conversation about George Russell and Lewis Hamilton going head-to-head, and the fact that George Russell was simply the better driver through the first portion of the calendar last year, especially up to, to Canada, where things where things seem to change. But if you look at Lewis Hamilton and George Russell head-to-head this year, which isn't something that we've talked a lot about, um, Lewis Hamilton is definitely having a better Year than his teammate. If you look at race results, Lewis Hamilton is nine to three versus George Russell. From a qualifying perspective, it's a little bit closer. Hamilton's outqualified George Russell seven to five. He has an incremental forty-nine points. Of course, Lewis Hamilton currently sits on one hundred and forty-eight points. George Russell sits on ninety-nine. So he's simply spreading the field there. Um, in terms of podiums, George Russell, of course, has won that recent podium he managed to secure. Lewis Hamilton has four podiums, best race finish this year. Of course, George Russell was that third. Lewis has had a second place finish and highest grid position. uh, Lewis Hamilton was first. And of course, George Russell was second. Uh, Lewis Hamilton year-to-date has zero DNFs and George Russell has two, of course. At least one of those was was largely due to driver error. So interesting to kind of reflect on their performance year-to-date, especially given the fact that there was so much noise and so much clamor midway through the season last year because George Russell was so significant. Outperforming Lewis. Of course, that was in the immediate shadow of the 2021 Abu Dhabi conclusion, and you know what? Maybe Lewis Hamilton would be forgiven, even as a professional, um, if it took a little bit of time to work through, work through some of the emotions stemming from the outcome of that race. But that said, again, too, they were both in a brand new car, and a brand new chassis, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time to get used to that. Another chart here that I have from F1 Charts. Again, at F1 underscore charts. We always like to give credit where credit is due. The most percent of laps led in an F1 season. So we know Max is having a a pretty dominant season so far. Max Verstappen so far in the 2023 championship has led 78.3% Of all Formula One Grand Prix laps, to contextualize that in the history of the sport, Jim Clark in 1963, racing for Lotus, led 71.5% of all laps. Nigel Mansell in that dominant 1992 season, immediately before, of course, he jumped over the Atlantic Ocean and went to Indy to win another championship. Nigel Mansell in 1992, and I remember watching these races like it was yesterday with my grandparents in their kitchen. 67% 67% of all laps, Sebastian Vettel in 2011 with Red Bull led 65.2%, Michael Schumacher in 94 surprising he's maybe not a little higher up this list, but Michael Schumacher in 94 with Benetton led 61.8% of all laps, Michael Schumacher in 2004, a decade later with Ferrari led 60.9%, Sebastian Vettel again, 2013 with Red Bull led 60.5%. Lewis Hamilton, it's funny, we talk about those years of dominance with Mercedes, but again, he always had that, at least up until the end of 2016, he always had that very close rival in Nico Rosberg to take some of those take some of those laps led away from him. But Lewis Hamilton in 2020, of course, that was the COVID shortened year. 59.1 percent of all laps led. If you look at 1953, Alberto Ascari with Ferrari led 56.8 percent. 1998, Mika Hakkinen 56.7 percent. Again, that was from at F1 underscore charts. Uh, another cool chart here that I wanted to share before we get onto our news story is the mid season break and this is from f1 stats guru the mid-season break points gap between the first and second driver on the grid and I want to contextualize this just to show you how dominating Verstappen has been this year if we go back to the year 2010 so again this is Kind of as the V8 era is starting to wind down, Mark Weber was leading the championship at the summer break by just four points on, on Lewis Hamilton. Of course, Sebastian Vettel would go on to win that championship. In 2011, Sebastian Vettel was leading the championship by 85 points over his teammate Mark Weber. In 2012, at the summer break, Fernando Alonso was leading the championship by 40 points over Weber. And of course, Guess what happened that year? Sebastian Vettel would win the championship. In 2013, Sebastian Vettel was leading the championship by 38 points over Kimi Raikkonen. In 2014, at the summer break, Rosberg was leading the championship by over 11 points from Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton would, of course, go on to win that championship in the double points finish in Abu Dhabi at the end of the year. In 2015, Lewis Hamilton was leading the championship by over 21 points from Nico Rosberg. Of course, Lewis would go on to win the title in 2016. Hamilton was up 19 points on Nico Rosberg, but wasn't able to hold down that championship. Of course, that fateful DNF, that engine failure in Malaysia, would doom his championship. In 2017, Sebastian Vettel, in his third season with Ferrari, was up 14 points on Lewis Hamilton. Of course, he wasn't able to hold on to that. In 2018, Hamilton was up 24 points on Sebastian Vettel. He would go on to win. In 2019, Hamilton was up 62 points on his teammate, Valserie and in 2021, Hamilton was up eight points on his rival Max Verstappen. And of course, we all know how that championship ultimately played out. Now In more recent history, if we look at 2022, Max Verstappen at the summer break was up 80 points, but he was up 80 points on Charles Leclerc. And of course, that's relevant because early on in the season, Charles Leclerc was at one point leading that championship. But it's also interesting that he had that 80-point delta on Charles Leclerc, and Sergio Perez really isn't anywhere to be seen. This year, of course, 2023, Verstappen leading the championship by 125 points over his teammate. And the reason that I I think this is an interesting statistic is there was a quote that popped up from Eric Van Heren on Twitter and, Again, we've talked in the past about the fact that Formula One driver contracts are incredibly secretive. They're very, very, very confidential. They're locked away in a safe, and we don't know a lot about them, in part because there's no collective bargaining agreement in the teams, and the drivers aren't obligated to share them. But Sergio Perez, according to Eric Van Haren, Sergio Perez is doing himself a disservice with a big gap on Max Verstappen, a clause allegedly. Again, I don't know how he knows this, but a clause allows his contract to be adjusted by Red Bull. Now that the gap is exactly 125 points, salary and bonuses can be adjusted downwards. So again, according to Eric Van Heren here, his contract is scalable based on his performance relative to his teammates. So not only is he, you know, miles outside of contention for a championship, but his salary can be modified uh, in a way that's negative to him based on that 125 point gap to, to Max Verstappen. I also have a a pretty cool graph here from Autosport, which kind of contextualizes how the 2023 championship is playing out versus 2022. And obviously, not a lot of change right at the very top. Red Bull is leading this year as they were at this point last year. They've added 107 points to their total. And of course, last year at this point, they were up by, I think, 80 points over Ferrari. But that's where things start to get a little bit more interesting, of course. Red Bull, no change at the top. But this year, Mercedes is currently sitting in P2 on 247 points. Last year at this point, they were sitting in P3, although interestingly, with more points on 270 points. So, of course, Red Bull's been able to accumulate that huge lead by taking points off of everybody. Uh, this year, obviously, Aston Martin, after their towards start, six podiums in the first six, first eight races of the season, Aston Martin currently sits in P3 with 196. To contextualize this, at this point last season, Aston Martin was sitting P9 on 19 19- Points, which is just an absolutely uh, insane, insane turnaround. Uh, currently, this year, Ferrari sits in P4 on 191 points. That's down two spots because, of course, last year at this point, they were number two in the championship on 314 points. So they've shed about 120 points in two spots in the Constructors' Championship. McLaren, Still P5. They're P5 at this point last year as well. They've added 14 points to their total. Uh, This year, sitting in P6, Alpine. They're down from P4 at this point last season. They've also shed about 36 points in the championship constructors. P7, Haas currently sitting on 11 points. Last year, they were all P7, but on 34 points. Currently sitting P8 this year, Williams p Williams with 11 points. At this point last year, they were dead last on 3 points, so obviously some improvement there and some things to get excited about moving forward. Currently sitting in P9. I'm not even going to call them Alfa Romeo anymore because I need to condition myself to call them Sauber. Um, Sauber is currently sitting in P9 on 9 points. That is a huge, huge amount of slippage from where they were the prior year. At this point last year, they were sitting in P6 on 51 points, so a little bit disappointing given the fact that Audi's really investing in Sauber and they're able to now spend to the cap, but Sitting in P9, very, very disappointing uh, result for them. And then finally, dead last in the championship, Alpha Tauri. Uh, So at this point in 2022, Alpha Tauri were sitting P8 on 27 points. Uh, Year-to-date, they are sitting P3, or sorry, P10 with just three points. And of course, all three of those points came from Yuki um, and those miraculous p10 finishes and of course maybe there's more in store for this team as the season progresses because of course they've added a heavy weight in uh, in daniel ricardo who might be able to help them claw some points back and claw some respectability back as the season as for the next chart, and we have a lot of charts today, I hope you're enjoying this, but the next chart comes from Mad Frog Party over on Reddit. He did a really good job of compiling the average heights and the average weights of Formula One drivers. And I think there's a couple of things that are probably true, which is F1 drivers typically aren't particularly tall because that's not a beneficial characteristic. And they're certainly very slender uh, because, again, carrying a significant amount of weight, whether it's in body fat or whether whether it's in muscle is also not particularly helpful in terms of uh, benefiting a Formula One car. But a couple of stats that I thought were pretty interesting here. First of all, Yuki Tsunoda, probably not surprising, the shortest driver on the grid. Uh, he's 159 centimeters, which is five foot three, and the tallest driver is Esteban Ocon, and he's. Pretty significantly taller than most of the grid. Esteban Acon is 187 centimeters, which is six foot two. So, pretty wide gap there. And if you run down the list, Acon six foot two, Albon, six one, George Russell, six one, Nico Hulkenberg, six, Lance Stroll, six, Logan Sargent, five eleven, Max, five eleven, Charles Leclerc, five eleven, Daniel Ricciardo, five ten, taller than I expected, Oscar Piastri, five ten, Sainz, five ten. Gasly, 5'10", Lando Norris and Zhu Guanyu, both 5'9", Kevin Magnuson, Lewis Hamilton, Sergio Perez, Valtteri Bottas, all 5'8", Fernando Alonso, 5'7", Nick DeVries, 5'6", and Yuki. So maybe the exception, the outlier at 5'3". And then from a weight perspective, you've got a pretty big range as well. Yuki Tsunoda, again, the, the lightest driver on the grid. Yuki is, I was going to say he clocks in, but he's not a car. Uh, Yuki Tsunoda is 54 kilograms, which is a slender 120 pounds. And then the heaviest driver currently on the Formula One grid is Nico Hulkenberg. He is 78 kilograms, which translates into 172 pounds. So 172 pounds from six foot. Um, myself, I, I'm again, I don't know that anyone's interested, but it, again, it helps to kind of paint a picture here. I'm six foot two. I'm significantly overweight work from home hasn't been kind i'm 188 pounds hoping to get down to 170 but uh i thought that was interesting and it kind of puts into perspective um kind of the weights and and the heights of some of these drivers on the grid and kind of the final statistic here is, and I like this call out from Mad Frog Party, but Oscar Piastri represents the most average body image of the 2023 F1 grid at 178 centimeters or 5 foot 10 and 68 kilograms, 150 pounds, with a body mass index of 21.5. Now, the last story to touch on before we jump into the news is that the 2024 Formula Two World Championship has been announced, and it looks like the biggest change is that Zandvoort is gone, and effectively replacing it is Lucelle, Qatar, uh, for the 29th to December 1st round. But to quickly run you through this, the championship, of course, largely mirrors the Formula One calendar, uh, but we'll have round one in Sakhir, in Bahrain, followed by Jeddah, Melbourne, Imola, Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Spielberg, Silver stone budapest spa Monza, baku like i said lucille and then the formula 2 championship will wrap at yas island in abu dhabi in the united arab emirates in the first weekend of december all right let's take a quick break we are already 30 minutes into the show let's take a quick break and when we jump back we'll get right into the news
1: passion drive and patience
0: Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Again, it's a holiday Monday up here in Canada. We're taking it a little bit chill. We're a little bit relaxed. We're having a little bit of fun. I'm by myself today. Daly's enjoying the day with his fam out doing picnicking, kayaking, foresting, whatever people do. But now it's time to get into the news and the coolest or most interesting story I think this week comes from Forbes.com and Forbes has a fantastic article and I will absolutely link this to everybody on our Twitter feed but Sam Cooper also does a really good job of summarizing what the story is about and over the last year you may have heard us drop the name Calvin Lowe. Calvin Lowe is an alleged and I say alleged because that's an important part of the story, but he's an alleged Hong Kong based billionaire. And he claimed multiple times over the past year that he had a big stake in Williams. And curiously, nobody ever tried to substantiate that, but he alleged to have a piece of the Williams team. But furthermore, he claimed that with his massive wealth, that as a billionaire, he was going to back the creation of an 11th or 12th team on the F1 grid. Now, according to Sam Cooper, and I'm going to read here from Sam Cooper's article on planetf1.com, Calvin Lowe, a former prospective F1 team owner, has been outed as an alleged fraud by Forbes, who claims he lied about his wealth and F1 involvement. The calm con- Hong Kong-based businessman surfaced last year with claims he was using his billionaire dollar fortune to secure a place on the Formula One grid. Speaking of multiple p- publications, including Planet F1, Lowe claimed he already had an existing involvement in the Williams team, which of course proved to be complete fabrication, but was in fact looking to go a step further. He was not alone in that interest with multiple outfits such as Andretti looking for a spot. Unlike the American team, it seems Lowe doesn't actually have any money to back that up. Continues Sam Cooper. Lowe claimed he made his money through R.E. Lee International, which he said was the world's largest life insurance broker. And as recent as July 24th, a press release circulated to the media stating he was backing one of the teams bidding for a new place on the F1 grid. However, his world would explode when two days later, a Forbes investigation revealed that he was not actually a billionaire at all. And had never had any prior involvement in the Williams Formula One team, writes Sam Cooper. According to Forbes, their investigation actually began when Lowe invited their reporters to his Hong Kong office to discuss whether he should give them access to his books in order for him to be considered for a spot on their list of the world's billionaires. Sam Cooper continues, as it transpires, Lowe had actually been working for two years to get himself on the list. The problem was he was not rich enough. According to Forbes, the valuation of R E Lee International is closer to $60 million. And as for his other companies, the question is, do they exist at all? And the Forbes article opens like this, desperately faking riches inside a Hong Kong businessman's outlandish efforts to get on the Forbes billionaire list. It continues, for years, Calvin Lowe has relentlessly pitched himself as a globe-trotting billionaire financier philanthropist with a world-class collection of champagne, homes on three continents, a fleet of exotic supercars, and investments in a five-star hotel and an F1 team. Great story. Too bad, it's mostly fiction. And if you're interested, this is a really great article, and I recommend you all check it out, and I'll make sure to link to it on our Twitter feed. But it wouldn't be the first time that F1 had gotten into bed with somebody that proclaimed to be extremely wealthy but all of that was a mirage it was all fictional it was all fabricated but at least Forbes managed to out him before this uh this relationship proceeded any further but a pretty cool story nonetheless the next story here is from motorsport.com and it's written by Jonathan Noble and Jonathan Noble writes bandwagon f1 teams prompted collapse of Williams capex push says total wolf and he continues Mercedes boss Total Wolf has suggested the push to help Williams get more freedom to spend on factory improvements collapsed because Formula One rivals jumped on a bandwagon to help themselves. And if you remember, we talked about this a little bit last week that the F1 teams had all gotten together last week and there'd been a bit of a push to help. Equalize the playing field when it came to team infrastructure. That teams can spend a little bit of money above and beyond the cost cap on infrastructure improvements, but based on where Williams is relative to the rest of the competition, that's simply not enough to get them to a competitive place. That there's this marked um, sporting discrepancy between what Williams is capable of, even if they spend to the cost cap and what the rest of the field's capable of. Imagine that you have a hammer and it's a metal hammer that you bought from Home Depot and you need to build a birdhouse with it but yet your competitor has a popsicle stick and that's what they need to use to hammer nails like that's that's kind of the disadvantage that that Williams is operating on again it's fundamentally their problem due to decades of underinvestment and mismanagement but again the entire purpose of the most recent concord agreement and the financial regulations the cost cap were to equal kind of equalize the playing field a little bit. And the cost cap alone isn't enough. Now, unfortunately, uh, there was a conversation. It's been deferred to F1's financial advisory committee. But unfortunately, there wasn't any significant progress made, uh, says James Voles, of course, of the the Williams Formula One team. It's unfortunate, and it's disappointing, frankly, that we're in a situation where, again, that meeting, I would argue, went around in circles, if nothing else, and to a certain extent, it will do, because everyone in that room wants to make sure they're not losing out relative to everyone else. the article continues, why the CapEx discussions came up is that a team, and this is from Total Wolf, uh, why the CapEx discussions came up is that a team, Williams, said their infrastructure is subpar and they wouldn't be able to catch up with trivial things like machine equipment and up to the technical things like simulators. That was the starting point of all discussions. And then, as a consequence, some teams jumped on that bank wagon to say, but actually, we would like to have a little bit more CapEx as well. And that number went from 50 million to 60 million, 70 million, 90 million. And suddenly, it was like free reign, and why don't we change the CapEx levels, but there's no reason to do that, I think there's one team that we need to treat differently than all the others, which of course is Williams. So again, one of those situations where teams recognize that there's a sporting discrepancy, but anything that they can do to modify um, an amendment, a change, a regulation to benefit themselves, they're going to do it. And and I, I kind of get it, but it's just unfortunate that you have this team that is at such a, a, a market disadvantage relative to the rest of the field that it's going to be very difficult for, for them to to catch up in a in a meeting way, full way. Uh, Total Wolf actually continues. He says, we came up with a list. Some of the big teams said, we don't want a list. If Williams gets stuff, so we want to have stuff. And that was simply shut down. We need stability of regulations on financial relations. And you need to be able to have a business plan that is valid and not a free reign every two years. Where we could change the gold packs on CAPEX. Uh, so that's why this was the end of the CAPEX discussion. But maybe we will find a solution for Williams. So ultimately, the conversation has been deferred, like I said, to the Financial Advisory Committee of Formula One. That's really just a consulting group. I don't know that anything meaningful is going to come from that. But ultimately, I think there was some promise, some hope that there could be some sort of policy introduction to give Williams a little bit more breathing room so James Voles and teams could invest in uh, some of their infrastructure to make them a little bit more competitive. Uh, Ultimately, I think that's going to be very difficult to achieve in terms of getting consensus from the rest of the teams. And unfortunately, at this point, it doesn't look like that's going to happen Anytime soon. Now, talking of Total Wolf, and this is another article from motorsport.com and also Jonathan Noble, but according to Total Wolf, Red Bull has opened up another quote unquote advantage with their latest. F1 upgrade. Of course, they've been bringing uh, some not insignificant upgrades in recent races, and of course, they're entitled to they can continue to develop and build on that car as much as the cost cap allows and as much as they are able to derive information from CFD and the simulator and things like that. But says Total Wolf, I don't know whether our dominance was similar or less, of course, referring to the hybrid period, um, as I think we had years where we did it in the same way, but at least we had two cars that were fighting each other, he said, after seeing Verstappen pull clear in the Belgian Grand Prix. So that caused a little bit of entertainment for everyone. And that's not the case at the moment. It is what it is, and I often say that it's a meritocracy, and it's up to us to fight back. Did we expect that gap? Certainly not. I think the last. I think with the last step of upgrade, it seems they have another advantage that they were able to exploit. But again, it always gets me back to the point of we just have to dig in and do the best possible job and of course Jonathan Noble then reinforces that Red Bull has won all 12 races held so far this season and has surpassed the record for the most consecutive wins by a single team of course that's 13 stretching back to to last year and it would have gone back even farther if not for the fact that George Russell had managed to pull that Grand Prix victory uh, out of the air I shouldn't say out of the air it was a well-deserved victory but if George Russell hadn't been able to win the Brazilian Grand Prix last year so really just I think a a a sobering realization from Total Wolf that as much as all the other teams on the grid continue to develop their car and bring upgrades, Red Bull can continue to do the same. And we know that there was some punishment last year for the breach of the cost cap, a financial penalty, which is meaningless in the sport when you talk about the valuation of these teams and their ability to uh, put together a check to, to pay for that fine. But ultimately, the real punishment for them was a reduction in simulator and CFD time But ultimately, it's not like they don't have any and they're able to continue to build on the concepts uh, that are available to them and they can continue to build on the car that they currently have. The next article here, incidentally, is also from motorsport.com and Jonathan Noble. Jonathan Noble, I think we... I think we owe you a nice cup of coffee from Starbucks for providing so much fuel for our show today. But Jonathan Noble reminds us that obviously earlier this year, the FIA had opened up an expressions of interest evaluation process for organizations that had hopes or aspirations of fielding a team on the Formula One grid. And of course, he did this uh, despite the fact that it contradicted what the commercial rights group in Liberty had hoped, that Liberty is at the current stage where they are beholden to the teams or vice versa. I don't really know. But ultimately, the commercial rights group isn't in a hurry to add teams. And again, when you talk about the grid and 10 teams and you talk about the physical infrastructure of the tracks that we visit, 10 teams... of works now the concord agreement allows for 12 so you could add an 11th or 12th team on the grid and of course all of the all of the tracks would have to construct additional facilities to enable that but ultimately i don't think that's asking a lot of the track race organizers to be totally honest but the point here is that Mohammed bin Salam, the president of the FIA, uh, which of course is the, the regulatory body, the governing body of the championship, he had pushed forward with this concept of introducing new teams to Formula One, despite the fact that it's pretty clear that the rest of the Formula One stakeholders, including the teams, and of course, including, including the commercial rights group in Liberty, have no desire to pursue that at this time. And in a way, I kind of get it that You've got this grid of 10 teams and I think ideally you want to get the regulations and you want to get the, you want to get the cost cap to a place where all 10 of the teams can be at least if not equally competitive, at least significantly more so than they are today, right? Like we're not in a great place today where you have an AlphaTauri uh put them aside because that's a a fringe case, but where you have a Williams and and you have some of these other smaller teams like Haas that simply aren't even remotely competitive with the bigger teams that, hey, maybe before we start adding teams to the grid, we should be solving the discrepancy in performance between some of these smaller teams and some of the bigger teams. And hey, once we have a really tight 10-team championship, hey, then maybe there's an opportunity to talk about introducing new teams. But all that said, I think if you speak to the casual Formula One fan, I think everyone is intrigued and excited by the idea of introducing an Andretti Cadillac or someone like that to the Formula One grid. And I think Mohammed bin Salim was kind of playing on that emotional um, understanding of the Formula One fan base that, hey, we would love to have an 11th team. We'd love to have a 12th team that it makes the championship more exciting. There's more to talk about. And maybe there's another big team that can bring Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes down a peg. I think those are cool things. But the reality is he initiated this process without any without any involvement or input from, from Liberty. And of course, that puts Liberty in a tough position because they clearly have no desire to, to add a team at this point, but it adds significant pressure to them because all of a sudden there's this application process through which organizations are, are committing and investing their time. And ultimately, the FIA is going to come to some sort of uh, perspective on those applications that eventually, at some point later this year, they're going to come forward and say that, hey, as the regulator, we like this bid or we don't like this bid. But I think we have every reason to think that they are going to say, hey, we want to move forward with the Andretti Cadillac bid. I think there's every reason to think that that's going to happen. But the reality then is, what what kind of position does that put Liberty in? That Liberty says, We didn't want to proceed with this process. You did it against our wishes. And now we're going to be backed into a corner where we have to decline this and we have to look like effectively the bad guy. Now we had expected that the FIA was going to come forward with their recommendations a little bit sooner than they had. Uh, The original deadline for the applications was supposed to be the end of June. This has been pushed back a number of times because the FIA, at least according to Jonathan Noble, wants to ensure that it conducts a very, very thorough analysis of all of the entries, which is good because I think in the past we've haphazardly let anyone on the grid regardless of their financial wherewithal. So that's a good thing. Uh, but writes or says Mohammed bin Salam, we extended it being the deadline because some of the teams requested some time and you don't want to exclude them. You have to be flexible. We are not yet over with it because we have to be very careful with making a decision. It's a big process and I don't like to be rushed because the decision has to be very, very clear, um, says Jonathan Noble asked when a decision could be expected. Mohammed bin Salam says not far away. I think four to six weeks. We need to do it right. We are talking about big investment from people. We just have to wait now for the the next six weeks to see what is the plan. I have no doubt that FOM will do the right decision. They know what's better. Uh, Ben Salam then said there are between five and six applications with three of four of them being very serious. Now, the interesting thing about this article, and we've talked about this topic ad nauseum, like nothing I'm saying right now is something that you haven't heard before. Uh, but I, I think one of the interesting acknowledgements here is the potential for legal action, that if I'm Andre Cadillac, and the FIA has put forward this bidding process, and I submit my application, and I go through the entire exhaustive process, and then ultimately the FIA approves my application and makes a recommendation that we proceed with it, and that FOM and Liberty declines or says, hey, we will have a conversation, but we're gonna negotiate the anti dilution fee. Does that potentially open up a legal threat? And and it's very interesting here because Mohammed Ben Salam actually acknowledges that. And he says, What if one of the applying teams takes us to court? They can if we say no to them. And he continues, It's not about me. I am only implementing the rules. And and it's funny that he acknowledges that. We could go to a place where one of these prospective teams brings legal action against the FOM. But the reality is it's it's very self-inflicted because had the FOM and Liberty and the FIA been on the same page, Maybe we wouldn't have gone down this page. And I totally get it that if I'm on Dreddy Cadillac and the FIA says, hey, we're opening up this expansion process, uh, this this opportunity to add additional teams to the grid and I do everything they say and I submit all the paperwork and I let them into the factory and I let them meet all the executives and I open up my bank accounts and that ultimately FOM just says, well, no, we were never going to do this to begin with. And there is a legal route that I could pursue to force my way onto the grid. I'm going to pursue that. But ultimately it's just a terrible look to Formula One. That if this ultimately manifests itself into a situation which is in the courts, it's just a terrible look. And ultimately, as as much as I don't necessarily agree with the reasons why FOM is is so reluctant to add teams, and I, I think a lot of that is because they're functionally indebted to the teams and they want to do right by the teams who are ultimately the backbone of the championship. Um I'm open to having a new team. If one, we can continue to close the gap in terms of the competitive balance of the existing teams and I too I also totally agree that the existing anti-dilution fee is a joke and it was based on the reality on the ground three years ago uh, but I think ultimately if Andretti was to come to the table and say hey we're willing to negotiate and they get to a place that's 800 million dollars or a billion dollars like let's have that conversation but I think the outcome is going to be that Andretti is going to get a recommendation from the FIA it'll probably be the only one they're going to get that recommendation and then and the FOM is going to shut it down and say we're not interested, and it's ultimately probably going to lead to to legal action. And it's just it's just really interesting that Mohammed bin Salam acknowledges that that could potentially be the outcome, but that he knew from the outset that that could have been the reality because it was always very clear from the FOM and Liberty that they weren't in a position where they wanted to take on an 11th team. So. Just very, very disappointing. And again, it kind of speaks to the history of the F1 because there's always been these kind of power battles between the teams and and the commercial rights group and the FIA. And sometimes they've been aligned and sometimes they break apart. But right now, unfortunately, the FIA under Mohammed bin Salam seems to be miles and miles from uh, from Stefano Domenicali and the commercial rights group. I also have a quote here from... Uh, Liberty Media CEO, Greg Maffei And he says, I think there's little daylight between Stefano and my view, which is we have 10 great teams and we're very excited about what they're doing. There was a process to add more teams, but the bar is very high and it's unclear what value an 11th team would add. And there's a lot of uncertainty among the other teams and about an 11th team. The FIA, and we have had productive discussions about all of this. Do we agree on everything every moment? No, we discuss it and we hopefully work things out out Uh, continues in this article Domenicole insists that an agreement will eventually be reached with the FIA 11 team suggesting an answer could come next month the FIA started the process as is their possibility we are waiting for the final conclusion but as always in this discussion we'll find agreement together because as Mafai said the value of the teams and the value of the business today is very strong that decision that information will come very very soon I would say within the month of September I would say today conversations are really going ahead because the momentum of the sport is really great of course we're not in a rush but I would say that all all things are heading in a positive conclusion for these discussions, both with the teams and the FIA. So maybe uh, maybe a more positive outlook here, or maybe there's some trending understandings that if a team is granted a spot, the FOM would be open to that if that team is willing to negotiate on that anti-dilution fee.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast,
0: lunch, and dinner? Check. The next story, uh, like the idea of an 11th or 12th team in Formula One, the next story has been around forever, and it is the idea of Lewis Hamilton extending his current agreement with Mercedes, and of course, his deal is up at the end of the year. We've heard multiple times since Bath Rain, since winter testing, that he was very close to signing an agreement, and we would probably hear something within the next week, and that hasn't happened. So obviously, in this circumstance, obviously, Mercedes is very, very patient, and Lewis Hamilton is very patient. Themselves, But when questioned about the fact that no agreement has been reached earlier this week, Total Wolf said, I'm doing everything I can to make him stay. He continues, I think there is no need to persuade him. He knows about all the goodness. And although we struggled with this car this year and last year, he will be part of the resurrection of the team. Continues Total Wolf, Lewis has become a friend, and over the years, we've gone through difficult spells and very good moments. We celebrated many championships, and we had discussion amongst ourselves, which were not always easy. But today, he is just a friend. He's an ally. He's the best racing driver in the world, and I'm very proud of being part of his career. So no meaningful update here. And ultimately, these quotes from Total were just him responding to a reporter and a media pen somewhere asking about the status of Lewis's contract. And I think as much as we all get excited about the idea of Lewis Hamilton exiting Mercedes and finding a seat somewhere else. I just don't know where that would be. The reality is it's never going to be Ferrari because I think they're committed to their drivers and it certainly would never be Red Bull uh, for all of the reasons that you can imagine. And then if you look at the rest of the grid, what other team makes sense? And Lewis has obviously been with this team now for a decade. He's been there since 2013. He raced there in the V8 era. He's been there throughout the turbo hybrid era. I just don't think logically it makes sense for a driver who's approaching 40 to To pursue a seat with another team and effectively start over, unless there were massive uh well-established promises that that team was going to be significantly more competitive and I, I don't see i don't see that and obviously the w-13 and the w-14 have been wildly disappointing by by any measure uh but i think he probably still has significant confidence in this team and i also don't believe that there's another team on the grid that one has the capacity to pay him what he's potentially looking for um and i don't think that there's another team that maybe has the capacity that would have the want to pay him in the range of 40 to 70 million us dollars a year and i think that's probably what he's looking for because i don't know how many more years lewis has but i have to think that as he approaches these negotiations he's probably thinking about it in the sense that this is maybe my last deal and this is my last shot to have that big deal and of course he's earned that he has the leverage and he has the right to seek the biggest deal he possibly can and i think the other piece too is if i'm lewis and i've been a part of this team and i've been a part of so many championships and i have brought so much value to the brand um both in terms of the valuation of the F1 team, but also value to the Mercedes-AMG brand, I probably want more than a contract, that I want some sort of financial incentive or gesture or mechanism that will pay me for the rest of of my lifetime. And I think that's probably where these negotiations are getting a little bit sticky because I think presumably Mercedes comes forward and say, hey, here's a two-year $100 million deal or a two-year $80 million deal. And if I'm Lewis and I'm his camp, I'm probably negotiating for something a little bit richer than that and something that gives... Ongoing value um, and stickiness to the relationship for the rest of my my life. Now, of course, last week we talked about the chaos at LP and the chaos at Endstone and the fact that. Atmar Snafnauer, after just 18 months and after just 33 races at Alpine, was promptly exited, of course, in the wake of Laurent Rossi's exit. That team is in total chaos. Uh, But he's been asked recently uh, whether he intends to be back on the grid or what that shape could look like. But he believes that he could make a pretty quick return to F1. And I think when you look at the comments that he's made, he really acknowledges that, look, his return to F1 doesn't necessarily have to be as a team principle doesn't necessarily even have to be with an F1 team themselves but that there's a lot of different ways he could be involved and if you listen to his comments and some of the things that he says he's acknowledged that being away from the sport for a year can be massively problematic upon your return, that the sport's moving so quickly and so many changes are being introduced and so many decisions are being made about the 2026 regulation set that you don't want to be on the outside looking in for a year because by the time you come back, you're going to be playing so much catch-up with the rest of the competition, both in terms of your intellectual knowledge of the field and both in terms of the fact that you weren't able to influence any of those decisions, that you're really put at a significant sporting and personal and professional disadvantage. So he says, and I quote, 12 months means no Formula One teamwork, but there are other things in Formula One I can do, he said, speaking to Speed Cafe. So I could go and work for an engine manufacturer, for example, help them, or I could go work for F1 experiences and help them, or F1, or the FIA. So maybe I'll be around in less than 12 months. says this article asked as to whether he had already received offers. He said, I've had discussions. So probably not a surprise. I think he is generally very well-liked. Obviously, his exit from Aston Martin wasn't particularly pretty. And of course, he had that comment at the time about, hey, there could be only one Pope in reflection to some of the, the leadership changes that had been made under Lawrence Stroll's leadership as they rebranded an Aston Martin, obviously. Alpine, for a variety of reasons, was a total disaster. Um, and I still think, and my opinion has evolved as time has gone on, that initially I assigned a lot of that blame to Otmar, especially what we saw midway through last season with the driver changes. But ultimately, it was Lauren Rossi that would have been the one going to Renault CEO Luca de Meo and asking for money to pay the drivers. And that probably wasn't an Otmar decision not to extend Fernando Alonso. That was probably more of a Lauren Rossi situation. And then you also we also got a real... I would say, valuable insight or valuable indication of what it was like to work with Lauren Rossi when he had those horrible comments about the entire organization to Canal Plus during the Miami Grand Prix. So Otmar is going to find another role in Formula One. And like we said last week, he's particularly valuable as an asset because he grew up in the U.S. and he's familiar with a lot of the U.S suppliers and manufacturers and things like that, and he could prove a valuable asset to the addition of a new team like an Andretti Cadillac if if they were to be fortunate enough to be granted a spot on the grid. I, I think he's going to find a seat. And, and like I said, my opinion of his performance at Alpine has really evolved really over the last couple of months as it's become more and more clear what the climate was like that he was working with at that team. Now, the next story that I want to talk about is also an Alpine Renault related story but of course since his unceremonious departure from Ferrari at the end of November last year was that long ago already but of course Matteo Bonato had exited Ferrari he wasn't necessarily fired but I think the writing was on the wall and I think I'd use the quote at the time that he left before he was pushed Uh, of course he's had some significant time to kind of survey the landscape again a sense of what's happening in the world of Formula One and there was a lot of rumors earlier that maybe he would be a good addition to the Audi Works team. Of course, that doesn't seem to be something that's going to be realistic, but over the course of the last week, there's been a ton of stories linking him to the Renault team. Now, Racing News 365 kind of speaks to the fact that this could be a horrendous landing spot for him and they do a good job of kind of summarizing the Renault experience since their return to Formula One in 2016 and one of the biggest problems that they made early on was that they committed to winning a world championship within the first five years of course within that five-year period they had a couple of podiums behind Daniel Ricciardo before of course Daniel Ricciardo exited the team to go to McLaren but ultimately they've significantly under delivered I-, I think they hoped a couple of years ago that by rebranding as Alpine and bringing in some fresh leadership in Otmar that they might be able to start to gain a little bit more traction. But here we are midway through 2023 and the team is in total disarray and they're significantly behind where they were even last year in the championship. And we don't need to kind of relitigate all of those kind of conversation points. But the conversation here is that Matteo Bonato is clearly and openly looking for a new landing spot. I don't think he was probably satisfied with the way that things turned out at Ferrari, and I, I think that there was probably a lot of meddling from some of the senior leadership at that team uh, that we've spoken to in the past. And he probably didn't have clear reign and and solid autonomy when it came to decision making with that organization. And and he exited, which is his right, and it was probably going to happen anyways. Like I said, you know, he left before he was pushed. But I think there's a lot of people now connecting him to Alpede and whether this would be a good fit for him. But a number of different Organizations, media organizations, including Racing News 365, have acknowledged that yes, while that's a possibility, that would probably not be a great landing place for him and I read here from Racing News 365 the Renault power unit is to believe to be 30 horsepower down in the offerings from Mercedes, Ferrari and Red Bull uh, let's not forget that Bonato was actually an engine guy he was responsible for turning Ferrari's poor f- first attempt at a turbo hybrid around and was chief technical officer with the excellent 2017 and 2018 cars were built if only Sebastian Bettle and the team executed these seasons better a world title could and probably should have gone to Marinello it was this success that led Sergio Marconi promoting Bato Bonato to the role of team principal in 2019 to replace Maurizio Erevebene, a move which divided opinions at the time. As the power unit freeze rules did not come into play until 2022, why divert Bonato's attention away from such a crucial element of performance? Ultimately, Bonato would carry the can for Ferrari's continued lack of title success, and aside from a couple of visits to Grand Prix, has been relatively quiet since his departure. Should Bonato even want to come back to F1, the ideal circumstances would be restoring him to head up Ferrari's technical department, leaving Frederick Vasseur to slug it out with the likes of Wolf and Horner on political matters. Whoever does end up as the Alpine team principal needs to be able to stand up to the higher-ups and tell them not to interfere and let them run a Grand Prix team as it needs to be without the meddling and unrealistic expectations that Snafnauer was working under. And I I think this is brilliant. One, yes, the ideal place, I think, for him would be running the engine department of one of the bigger teams. Uh, But ultimately, I think the challenge that he had at Ferrari ultimately was that playing the political game externally within within the ecosystem that was f1 against the other team principals and against the fia and lobbying and and lobbying the commercial rights group wasn't his strength and internally i don't believe he had any success and again when we talk about uh interference within that organization i think that there was increasing interference in 20 and 21 and, and 22 because there was questions about the team's decision-making around strategy. And I think as the exposure of Formula One became greater and greater, there was internal pressures uh, that were mounting as well because of the team's lack of championship caliber success. And ultimately, I think he was a victim of a number of different things. But I think one of those was he simply was in a position where he could go to John Elcan and some of the other executives at Ferrari and tell them to back off that I need the autonomy and the authority to run the Formula One Grand Prix project on my own without your meddling. And I don't think that was something that he was capable of doing. But what Racing News 365 is suggesting here is that whoever takes over that Alpine project needs to be able to say the exact same thing, that it can't be another scenario where you have Luca DeMeo, the CEO of Renault, and Laurent Rossi, the, the CEO of Alpine, being so actively involved in the Formula One project that ultimately, if you're going to, if you're going to hire somebody as a team principle, they need the autonomy to run that team in its entirety. And I don't think that Otmar had that. And I think that there was a lot of interference from above. And I think what this article is suggesting is that that's probably unlikely to change. And if Bonato was given that role, is he capable of taking that stand with the rest of the organization, with the successor of Lauren Rossi and with Luca de Meo, Is he able to draw a line in the sand and say, no, this Formula One team operates in a box in isolation from the rest of the organization and you don't get to meddle, you don't get to interfere. And having said all of those things too, if I'm Matteo Bonato, is that really the team that I want to go to? Because do I anticipate that they're in a position where they could enjoy any degree of sustained success. We know that Enstone isn't the greatest facility in Formula One. We know that the power unit, whether it's 15 horsepower, as Charbo Saloom suggests, or whether it's as great as 30 horsepower, uh, we know that, that that power unit is significantly down versus the rest of the competition. And equalization as a concept is not something that is owed Um, or guaranteed, and that for the next two years, this team could have that significant disadvantage versus the rest of the competition, and there's no guarantee they'll make that up in 2026. So if Matteo Bonanno walked into Endstone, he's facing an organization where you've got top-level, C-level executives that are very involved in the F1 team, which isn't helpful. You have a power unit that is currently significantly down on power versus the rest of the grid, but you're also going to be stepping into an organization where the 2026 power unit is already in flight that that's already in progress and if you walk in and you discover that that project is as compromised as the current project then that's gonna put you at a disadvantage in 26 and 27 so you go into it saying hey what is the what is the pathway to to success? And we're not gonna enjoy any success in 24. We're not gonna enjoy success in 25. What reason do I have to be confident that we'll be successful in 26? Because if we're not successful in 26, well, again, I'm gonna be in this exact same position where I'm probably gonna lose my job. So I don't know that that's the right fit for him. Um, and I don't know who that that job would be a good fit for, to be totally honest. The next story, and this is one that comes from Adam Cooper over at motorsport.com, but Liberty admits that the Las Vegas F1 race costs are are climbing, and it's probably not a big surprise, but Greg Maffey over at at Liberty, of course, the Liberty CEO, we talked about him a little bit earlier in the podcast. He says, I am pleased to say preparations are running on schedule. Despite inflationary cost pressures, we expect no change in revenue and profitability assumptions that we laid out previously. We are increasing CapEx estimates for the paddock building and track work. Remain confident in the return profile of this incredible project, of course, speaking to Las Vegas, which will support the incremental capital investment that we are making says Liberty Chief Financial Officer Brian Wilding. Our paddock building is now 85% complete. We expect CapEx related to the Vegas race including both the paddock building structure and track related CapEx to be close to $400 million, of which approximately $155 million was incurred in the first half of the year. Our team has managed this project on a compressed timeline and in an inflationary environment. Much of our cost increase is attributed to track related expenses incurred to be responsive to the concerns of the local community, such as minimizing disruption to businesses along the strip we've also invested in security enhancements that expensive and expensive incurred to ensure the quality of the fan experience with infrastructure changes to improve sight lines we are also working closely with our local las vegas partners and the speed and efficiency with which we've completed this project is a testament to these relationships so some acknowledgements there from liberty that obviously they're extremely ambitious project for las vegas which is going to be this temporary street circuit that will be um, aided by some true permanent physical infrastructure, such as the paddock building and some hospitality structures and things like that is ongoing. They have every reason to expect that it's all going to be completed and ready to go for the end of November when the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix happens. But they they also acknowledge that, hey, costs are not insignificantly higher than where we maybe anticipated they would have been a few years ago. But that's driven primarily from inflationary pressures. And I'll, I'll be totally honest, you know, like, like all of you, I'm a Formula One fan, but does it benefit me when F1 makes a ton of money? Because if they're making a ton of money, they're probably making that money at my expense. And am I getting good value for the money that I'm committing to the F1 cause? And likewise, if they lose money, how does that hurt me? How does that benefit me? If they lose money, it probably means that they're probably gonna try and find ways to take more money out of my pocket. So it's one of those things where, look, you know what, I appreciate that Liberty has done some really great things for F1. Um, but one of the things they've done really well for themselves is monetize every single aspect of the sport. And, you know, we sit here and I, I'm very happy that I pay 70 bucks or whatever a year for F1 TV Pro. Um, and that's a great experience. But I also haven't been to a Formula One Grand Prix since 2018. And forget COVID, the primary reason is just the costs are such that I could never afford to go. And I think I think some of the energy around F1 will potentially fade over the next couple of years, especially as Red Bull continues to dominate. And I think some of the demand on things like tickets will soften and certainly... and. Everybody has been sending me stories speaking to the fact that the U.S. is seeing ratings declines, which probably isn't a surprise. You know what? We're shifting out of COVID and people are returning to older hobbies and older habits. And F1 hasn't given them a really compelling reason to continue to watch races every weekend. Um, But I, I don't expect, having said all of that, to... See Formula One races return to a place that would be what I would consider affordable to attend and to race. So, when I see these stories like F1's making a lot of money, should I celebrate that? Because they're kind of doing it at my expense. Um, And if they lose money, should I celebrate that? Because they're probably just going to come to take more money out of my pocket. It's it's kind of one of these weird things. So while I give them a lot of credit for what they've done with the sport, I don't necessarily get super excited when I hear about the huge amounts of money that they're raking in because they're doing so in some ways at the expense of a lot of F1 fans that have sported the championship for, for, for many years many, many years. Now, the last story before we move on to MotoGP Corner is one that popped up in my Twitter feed earlier today and I thought it was really interesting. The article comes from Motorsport Week and it writes, Red Bull team principal Christian Horner says it's planning to cut back on the number of drivers within his junior ranks beyond this year. The article continues, the Austrian outfit has been renowned for its approach to bringing a plethora of young drivers into Formula One under the watchful eye of Red Bull advisor Helmut Marco. While well, Marco's ruthless approach is often been criticized, it has yielded six drivers' championships to this point with drivers whose careers were developed by Red Bull. As it aims to unearth the next Sebastian Vettel or Max Verstappen, Red Bull currently fields seven drivers across the 20 car grid in F1's premier feeder series, Formula 2. However, only Japanese racer Ayumi Iwasa, who sits third at present, remains in a realistic title contention with three rounds remaining. Subsequently, Horner has underlined that Red Bull will begin a process of reducing the number of drivers in his junior program to sure only the brightest talents remain says horner i think that look i mean things go in waves it produced sebastian vettel it proves max verstappen Daniel Ricciardo is a graduate of it. Carlos Sainz is a graduate of it. Pierre Gasly is a graduate of it. There's so many drivers it's given opportunity to and got to Formula One, Alex Albon being another. And yeah, it's focusing a bit more on youth. And I think going forward as well, we have a lot of drivers of Formula Two this year. I think that will be thinned out moving forward and perhaps a refocus on perhaps some of the lower formulas as well. But you know, a Max Verstappen or Sebastian Vettel, they don't come along every season. So it's just making sure that you identify that talent when it does come along so interesting that Red Bull who of course been renowned for the amount of money and resources they commit in their driver program is speaking openly and candidly about limiting the amount of investment that they make and of course this goes back to the need to have a second f1 team they probably don't they they absolutely shouldn't, but it is interesting that one of the things that's been the hallmark of their program has been their driver academy, and they're now speaking to the fact that, hey, we're going to thin it out. But having said that, if you look at the if you look at the current lineup of their teams, Sergio Perez is not a Red Bull Academy driver, and until recently, Nick DeVries was not a Red Bull Academy driver, and of course, Daniel Ricardo is back. Of course, he was a part of the Red Bull family for a very, very long time, but I think we've seen Red Bull pivot in recent years to openly having conversations about recruiting non-Red Bull Academy drivers to to pilot their cars and that was something that would probably have been unfathomable five or six or or seven years ago so just an interesting story and an interesting acknowledgement from Mr. Christian Horner now now we're back for a little bit of MotoGP Corner and I think Maybe the most surprising story to come out of MotoGP in the last week or so is the fact that time world champion Mark Marquez, who has scored just five points in a woeful 2023 championship in which... He has missed five Grand Prix due to various injuries and has crashed a whopping 14 times. Mark Marquez has acknowledged that he probably will be back with the factory Honda team next year. Now, maybe that shouldn't be a surprise because, of course, he is under contract for that team. But I think there was every reason to think that there would have been room for negotiations to exit that deal simply because Honda has been so atrocious this year. Obviously, they've had chassis issues and power unit issues every type of issue you can imagine. But says Mark Marquez, now of course, if I'm here, then my tension is yes, I will ride for Honda. We are working for the future in the Masano test. We will try the 2024 bike and then we will see more. We will understand more where we are. The good thing with Honda is we have a very good relationship and we are always looking for the best for the project. For the moment, the best thing for the project is to find a base like we are doing today to try the new things and maybe the new aero package in Austria. We'll see what the Japanese decide. Always we have a good relationship and always we are doing our best for the project. So it's, it's, it's one of those things, right? Where this is a guy who came into MotoGP in 2013 and ran off back to back championship. Like imagine that as a rookie to walk into MotoGP and win a championship is is ridiculous. And followed up in 2014 with another. Of course he didn't win in 2015. That was the year it went down to the wire between the two Yamaha drivers. But then he just runs off a flurry of championships after that, 16, 17, 18, 19. And it's really only been since 20 and COVID and the succession of injuries that he's had that it's been really from a personal performance perspective, his career derailed, but now it's also combined with the fact that he has arguably the worst bike on the grid, despite the fact that Honda historically has been renowned for providing some of the most rich resources in the championship. So again, I, I would love to see his career restored, and I think the sport desperately needs a competitive. Mark Marquez, I think that they need that more than anything that the sport is reeling from the departure of Valentino Rossi even now a couple of years on and I think a successful Mark Marquez is something that could help to to amplify the interest in the sport which is sagging so badly and, and I say that because I have a really great tweet here from Simon Patterson and Simon Patterson covers MotoGP uh, like few other people do but he announced the weekend attendance for the British GP on his Twitter he said the Sunday attendance at Silverstone was just 48,564 people and if you've been to Silverstone or you've seen that track on television you know that 50,000 people at a track that size is nothing it's absolutely absolutely nothing. And when I was there in 20 what was the last year I was there 2016, uh, there were 73,000 people on race day. So attendance has slipped 30 40% in in 6 years and I think a big reason for that is that these big larger than life superstars aren't there to carry the sport. And again, total attendance this weekend over the 3 days at Silverstone was 115,959 people. Um, that's uh up a little bit versus last year. I think last year, the attendance was actually even worse, although I think sometimes weather can contribute to these things. But ultimately, it's not in a good place. And to contextualize that, Formula One drew just shy of 500,000 people to the same track over three days earlier this summer. So 480,000 people versus 115,959 spectators. And of course, It's not apples to apples. You can't compare the two of them. And I think in North America, people are like, why does this guy talk about motorcycle racing so much? But in Europe and in Asia, motorcycle racing is bigger than I think most people in North America can imagine. But when a major legacy event like Silverstone can't draw people, that's a real problem for the sport. So hopefully it'll improve. Hopefully Mark Marquez rekindles his ties with Honda. Hopefully Honda's 2024 bike is a marked improvement over this year. Hopefully Yamaha can continue to improve and hopefully some of these bigger manufacturers can really put a fight to Ducati in 2024 and mix up the championship a little bit. So having said all of that, I'm going to wrap up the show. We're an hour 15 in. Thank you for uh, thank you for tuning in and letting me ramble for a little bit here. Uh, I know the show is a little bit dicier than normal, but I just wanted to make sure that we were able to get a show out. Uh, if people were interested in some of the news, some of the gossip, some of the rumors, I want to make sure we had the opportunity to go through those. Like I said, I think Daly's working on something special that he's hoping to drop maybe early this week or maybe next week. It's going to be Australia-themed as a bit of a tease. We'll be back on Friday to do our weekly news show and then maybe next week we're going to drop moto gp 101 that is recorded it's in the book we're just trying to find the right time to place it during the summer break so with all of that said i hope everybody has a wonderful week and we'll speak to you again soon bye for now i feel like a locomotive sipping drinking arizona
1: mixtape just around the corner did a lot in california can't wait to drop this don't you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song demand. My songs gon' break through like a running back.